0: Welcome. Uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at New Hope. Thanks so much for joining us. We're grateful you're, you're taking time under these unique circumstances. We're, we're not, obviously, together in person, but we're together in spirit. We're, we're being the church, so thanks for making the, the sacrifice of time and energy uh, to join us. As you know, I love being with all the people from New Hope, so I'm bummed to not be with you, uh, but I look forward to, to seeing you, hopefully, in the, the not-too-distant future. Today, we're hoping to create an experience for you like you're right here with us. And I've got some of our staff team here uh, listening to me today as, as the crowd. Thank you. I I know you love them. I just want to thank them on behalf of the church and the elders. They've been unbelievably remarkable. We've been scurrying and working long hours uh, to try to adjust to continue to allow us to follow Jesus and share his love and, and serve you and, and serve the community. So I'm super grateful for them. Uh, keep all of us uh, in your prayers. It's been a really unique week. That's an understatement, I think, and it would be really natural uh, for you to feel anxiety and worry, concern. I've certainly been carrying some of those things in my heart, and my family's been wrestling with those things as you watch the chaos unfold. One of the ways that I've dealt with that as a follower of Jesus is, is to pray. I would call you to prayer. and We have this great resource called the Psalter, the Psalms, that Jesus prayed out of, and Almost instantaneously this week, uh, Psalm 46 came to mind, and I've posted it online a few times. I've, I've read it to the staff a few times. I've been praying through it in my heart, and I just want to start by reading this psalm to you. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. And then at the end of that psalm, it says this, he says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then this is a tremendous promise. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I believe that deeply. I choose to believe that. I cling by faith to those words they've carried me through some of these days. I also pray other Psalms. And one of the other Psalms that that has come up for me is Psalm 13. It's a totally different flavor Psalm. This is King David, and it opens with this. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And those are both from our prayer book, both completely reasonable to pray. And that's a prayer that I've come to in my places. I've I've watched the news and gotten updates and seen the concern in the community and and, in the hearts of the people I love is, God, where are you? There's this pandemic. What's going on? Same question that, that Jesus asked. And that tells us that it's totally warranted. We're in the, the fourth week of a series that w- we've been calling Last Words. And this is a series meant to carry us through the season of Lent to take us up to the celebration of Easter. And we're looking at the seven last words or the last phrases uh, from the mouth of Jesus as he hangs from the cross. The first week we looked at his uh, words of mercy. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Second week were words of grace. He turns to this criminal... Who has no righteousness in and of himself, and says, "Today, because you've looked to me, today you will be with me in paradise." And then last week we looked at his words of compassion uh, that God uh, is able to to feel for us and enter our suffering, and that led to to action. And he looks at his mom, who's right right there in front of him, and sees her suffering and sees her pain, and he cares for her by looking to his friend John and saying, "Hey, here's here's your mom now. Please take take care of her." we're taking these seven last words or phrases from the four eyewitness accounts of the gospel. No one eyewitness account has all seven phrases. The first two weeks were from Luke's eyewitness account. Last week was from John's eyewitness account. This week, we're going to look at Mark's eyewitness account. And this word, this phrase that we're going to look at today is the only phrase that Mark records Jesus saying, and I think that that's important. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, hopefully you do, turn with me to Mark uh, 15. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 33 through 38. Grab your phones, your Bibles, uh, wherever you're at, and read along with me. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi! Lama, sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Mark tells us that that at noon, darkness came over the entire land. Our first three phrases that Jesus said were in the period from nine to noon, now in the gospel eyewitness account, we enter this, this three hours of silence from noon to three when darkness covered the land. And we don't really know what this was. Some have said it, maybe it's an eclipse, and it couldn't have been an eclipse. No eclipse lasts for three hours. It was Passover. There was a full moon. It's scientifically impossible for an eclipse to happen during a full moon. This was a supernatural event. And it's interesting to note that darkness came before the very first Passover in Egypt. Darkness is now coming before the, the final Passover. Darkness preceded the original creation, and darkness accompanies the new creation in Jesus. Jesus shelt, uh, shouts out this phrase, uh, Eloi, Eloi, uh, lime sabachni, and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's It's, it's Aramaic, and it's interesting that Mark quotes the exact Aramaic it's what the original listeners would have heard from the cross and then he translates into Greek the words my God my God why have you forsaken me interesting did did God forsake his son on the cross did God turn his face away from Jesus a haunting and significant question Mark says that Jesus cried out in a loud voice. This Greek word, cried out, is used only one other time in Mark, interestingly enough. And it's at the very, very beginning of his gospel, where John the Baptist cries out in the wilderness, make way for, for the coming Messiah, make straight the paths for the coming Messiah. So there's a connection point that, that Mark is making between the Messiah and what Jesus is crying out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People misheard him that were standing there. They thought that he was calling out for Elijah, which is totally understandable. The rabbis, the Jewish people at this time, looked to Elijah as kind of the patron saint of lost causes. And if anyone appeared to be a lost cause at this point, it was Jesus. So the people that were there misheard the Aramaic phrase that he said and thought that he was calling for Elijah. Someone came and gave him a little wine on a sponge. And then someone in sarcasm says, let's see, If Elijah really comes. They're continuing to mock Jesus. And then Mark tells us that Jesus breathed his last breath, that his breath leaves him. And this affirms what we talked about a few weeks ago, that most people on the cross that are being crucified, they they die of asphyxiation because you've got to keep pushing yourself up to breathe again and again. And in time, you no longer have the strength to do so. And that confirms that Jesus passed away Uh, from asphyxiation. We know from the other gospel accounts that this was not his last words. It's the last words that Mark records, but they weren't his last words. We have three more weeks in the series to explore those. But it's very purposeful and intentional as the Spirit led Mark to write his gospel. And this was true for Matthew as well. These were Matthew's only and last words of Jesus. That they chose these words to be his final words. Why? Is, is Mark suggesting, are Jesus' words suggesting that God the Father abandoned his son on the cross? Did God the Father turn away from his son during his darkest hour? This question has been much discussed and debated throughout 2,000 years of church history, and much is at stake in how we answer it. Uh, over the last hundred or so years, theologians have consistently answered Yes to that question, that God did indeed turn his face away from his son, that God forsook his son on the cross. That was not necessarily the view of the early church fathers and and the writers and thinkers of the Middle Age, but for the last hundred years or so that has been the dominant view. And the thinking goes something like this that Jesus, as he carried our sin, God saw that, turned his face away from his son and poured out his wrath on his son. Jesus was cut off from the Father and completely forsaken and That is supposed to be good news. (laughs) It doesn't sound like good news. And maybe we've heard this for so long in our ears and our hearts that we don't even think about the ramifications. But it's interesting that the people outside of our faith that are asking provocative questions about Christianity and pressing in and asking, it sounds really bizarre to them. Atheist thinkers such as Richard Dawkins hear that thinking that God forsook his son, that, that God poured out his wrath on his son and abandoned him on the cross and accused God as being a divine child abuser. I heard a story recently of, of, of horrific child abuse. There was a young girl in Minnesota, and her family was abusive towards her, and in one instance to punish her, they locked her outside in the dead of winter, and sadly and horrifically, she She died. Is, that's what, is that what's happening here on the cross, that God the Father is locking out his son and abandoning his son and leaving his son out there to die completely alone? Well, if we play that out, it's, it can be deeply troubling for those of us who follow Jesus and look to the same God. What happens when, when we sin? What happens would we run away? Is God going to bail on us? Is God going to abandon? These are the questions that are at stake as we explore Jesus' last words did God forsake Jesus on the cross? How we answer that question can lead to heresy, and heresy is a term that just means something apart from or something outside of the core beliefs that followers of Jesus have always had from the first century on. How we answer that question, did God forsake Jesus, can lead to pictures of God and caricatures of God that can be grotesque and tragic. But I also think how we answer that question can lead to hope. And I think as we explore what Jesus was doing, what Mark was doing, and quoting Jesus, that we will find hope today. But you'll need to stay with me. Most Sundays, I I like to stay at about 30,000 feet. I don't try to get too far into the weeds and get too theologically nerdy. But for just a minute here, a couple minutes, I need to get nerdy. Uh, Mark is taking us into deep waters. He's forcing us to think more deeply about what is going on and who God is and who we are. So uh, have patience with me. Uh, You're going to have to put on and maybe just physically do this at home if you need to, your theological thinking caps. And kids, if you're with your parents, put on that theological thinking cap. We're going to get nerdy for for just a second or two. I want to talk about two theological ideas that have always been core to the way of Jesus they're, they're all over scripture. From the first century on, Christians have held these two beliefs to be core. And so, however, we answer the question, did God forsake His Son, have to fall within the parameters of these ideas. The first is the Trinity. Maybe if you've hung around in church or grown up in church, you've heard that term. Uh, did God forsake Jesus on the cross? How we answer this has to align with our idea of the trinity that is throughout scripture and always held by followers of Jesus. The trinity is is simple in how we state it. It's very complex in how we might understand and how it plays out. The trinity, the idea of the trinity is that there is one God and three persons in the Godhead. That There's a triune God. The God is three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but they're all God. So they're distinct persons, but they're of one essence. That's the idea of the Trinity. It's mysterious. It's difficult to understand, and I guess I'm okay with that because we're finite. God's infinite, and if I were to be able to fully understand and articulate who God was, I think I'd probably be more troubled, so there's going to be some mystery there. Did God forsake his son on the cross? How we answer it has to fall within the parameters of our understanding of the Trinity. The second phrase maybe you haven't heard, it's not as maybe common to be talked about in church. It's another kind of nerdy but really important theological idea. It's called the hypostatic union. It's kind of a weird term. It comes from the Greek word hypostasis, and that Greek word means substance. And this idea, again, simple to state, difficult to comprehend. There's some mystery around it, but it's the idea that Jesus, the the, the third person of the Godhead, Jesus was fully human, and fully God, both at the same time. So Jesus kind of had these two distinct natures, that he was fully God and fully human, divine and human. But that word, hypostasis in the Greek, substance, he was on one substance. We can't subdivide Jesus. He was both at the same time, fully. Uh, Pretty much any major heresy throughout church history, if you've studied any of those, revolves around trying to mess with this idea some way and, and come at it in the wrong way. So did God forsake Jesus on the cross has to fall within our our understanding of, of both the Trinity and the hypostatic union. Now, you'll see on your live Facebook feed, there's a little link to take a quiz now on what I just talked about. So we can pause. I'm just totally kidding. No quiz. And I know that it can be it can be heady. It could be uh, difficult to understand. I'm not up here trying to impress anybody with big theological concepts. It's really important. Mark is pressing us into this territory, and I hope it will make sense as we get into it. So what is Mark trying to say? and how we answer this question, did God forsake Jesus on the cross, I think we have to come back to the text. And we've done an entire Bible series here at New Hope. We've tried to arm you with tools to go with the text in the right way. And I think if we go with the text in the right way, we understand what Mark is doing through the Holy Spirit, then this answer will become more and more clear. Remember the phrase we use all the time, the Bible wasn't written to us, but it is for us. So what would Mark's original readers have thought when they heard uh, Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to explore that question. I think this will become more clear. It's interesting that the people at the foot of the cross, they misheard Jesus. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They misheard him, and I think, especially in the last hundred years, we have misheard Jesus and what he's saying. I think both Mark and Jesus, if we leaned in really close and we listened to what they were trying to say, they would say, it would be saying, read Psalm 22. I think that's what they would say. Psalm 22 is the key that unlocks the mystery of why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That quote is from Psalm 22, verse 1. The gospel is written in, uh, of Mark was written probably in 65 AD, so at this point there's been several decades of followers of Jesus taking the Psalter and the Psalm, using them in their worship gatherings. Psalm 22 was a key Psalm in Jewish worship gatherings. It was a key Psalm in early church worship gatherings. They knew it really well. These are the listeners and and the readers of Mark's gospel. We have to understand who they were and what's happening in them when they hear Jesus say what he said. We must understand that Mark 15, our passage, the backdrop of that and the backdrop of Mark's passion narrative, and passion narratives are the places in each of the four gospels, basically from the Garden of Gethsemane through the crucifixion, that they tell that story. Mark's passion narrative is entirely shaped by Psalm 22 here's a couple instances that we can see that to prove that mark 15 24 they divided up jesus's clothes and that's from psalm 22:18. 18 mark 15 27 jesus is surrounded by criminals that's from psalm 22:16. 16 mark 15 29 and 32 they insulted and shook their heads at jesus that's from psalm 22:6 6 and 7 mark 15 30 and 31 they challenged jesus to save himself that's right from psalm 22 8. Mark 15:34. Jesus cries out in forsakenness. That's what the verse we're considering. And again, that's right from Psalm 22, 1. Some scholars have done in-depth work to show how Mark really shapes his entire passion narrative all the way through the resurrection on the ebb and flow of King David's words in Psalm 22. Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion is very, very sparse, very few details, and yet he gives really weird, seemingly trivial details like they took Jesus' clothes and divided them. That's purposeful. Mark is trying to point us to Psalm 22. Our Bible Project friend, Dr. Tim Mackey, who's been at New Hope a few times, He's introduced us to this idea of the hyperlink. And if you're on any kind of website, the hyperlink's that that blue underlined thing that you click on. And the hyperlink then takes you to another place. And this is how the Jewish people and the early Christians understood God's word. When they clicked on Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have gone right to Psalm 22. Instantaneously. Because they knew it that well. They knew that's what Mark was doing. They knew that's what Jesus was doing. They didn't have Bibles in front of them necessarily. They wouldn't have been turning. I would encourage you to turn right now to Psalm 22. But they didn't really need to because they had Psalm 22 memorized. It was that deeply woven into their communities and how they understood Scripture. There's a, there's a, a, a way that the Jewish people would approach Scripture and quote Scripture. It's called uh, metaliptically," It's another really big word. All that means is quoting the first line of a piece of scripture, and that's suggesting the whole rest of the piece of scripture. This was a regular practice, and I think that's very much what is going on here. In Jewish and Christian early Christian worship gatherings, it was also common for them to use what we would refer to as call and response. So the worship leader, the person reading scripture, would sing out, and a lot of times they were singing the psalms, they'd sing out the first line, And then the rest of the people then would respond back and then the leader would sing another line and they'd respond back and be going back and forth and back and forth. What's an example for us? So you can participate at home now and our massive crowd here can participate as well if they want. (laughs) So this is a well-known song, I think you'll, you'll know it at church. But if I was up here and I started with this phrase and then I want you at home to participate and do this with me. If I was like, amazing grace, How sweet the sound. (laughs) Right, I hope you did that at home. You probably got it. You probably understood it. If you're not participating, it's time. It's time to participate. It's a call and response. That song is so deeply woven into us, like Psalm 22 was, that the rest of it just comes naturally, it's assumed. Uh, Paul, who is in the audience today, uh, we, we have a long friendship in history, and we wor- we served at a church together, and um, we got to know each other by going on a, a trip to Romania. If, if you remember that, Paul, and we went with our good friend Leif. I didn't ask his permission to use this, but I hope he's okay with it. Uh, Leif is like one of the best humans on the planet. Yeah, he's a pretty large man, and it often looks disheveled. I love him to death, but that's kind of who he is. And that's part of his charm. And Leif was with us on that trip, and. And one of the memories I have, and I don't know if, if Paul remembers this, is uh, we were in Budapest, Hungary, and we were kind of ending up our trip, and we were at a hostel, and then downtown, uh, or down down below on the first floor, was a pub. So Leif and Paul and I went down one night to the pub, and we were gonna get a bite, and uh, lo and behold, there's karaoke happening. And on the list of things that I despise on Earth, karaoke's probably near the top of the list. I'm not a huge fan of karaoke leaf loves karaoke that's his personality he just loves crowds and performing and so he just lit up so picture the scene we're in europe we're uh, a bunch of American dudes here, and we're this in this in this pub, and there's karaoke. So Leaf waited a song or two that he couldn't hold himself back anymore. So he sh- he he just confidently walks up to the microphone, and there's maybe I don't know 20, 30 Europeans in there, and and us. Uh, <laughs> Leaf picks uh, I don't know if you know John Denver, but he he chose John Denver Country Road. If you know that song, Country Road, take me home to the place I belong. I know you want me to sing it, but remember I hate karaoke. So Leaf starts belting out <laughs> John Denver super super off-key, this large dude up there, look at disheveled, hasn't showered for a few days, just killing it with John Denver. And I'm literally expecting stone-cold silence, because we're in Budapest. Who knows John Denver in Budapest? I was shocked. The entire place lit up, some people standing up, and by the end, there's about 40 Europeans singing at the top of their long, off-key John Denver's country road, and it just—I'll <laughs> never forget that. I think it—it sense it, it, assents, it assents That will—that's what was pounding in Jesus' heart when Jesus is there on the cross. I think he's deeply meditating on Psalm 22. He sees it as his story. He's entering it as his story, and he's kind of giving this call and response to the people that are out there. But it's a rough crowd. It wasn't like the crowd that night. And I think it probably was silence, but I think Mark is telling us as he records Jesus giving this first line that it's never too late to to sing along. Now, I know I've thrown a lot at you and maybe how you've grown up and you've seen these words are different than what I'm presenting and I'll give you time and space to process that and look into that and I don't usually quote a lot of biblical scholars but I want to do so so you think I'm not off in some crazy left field. This is a biblical scholar named Dr. Tom, Tom McCall and, and he falls in line with many, many biblical scholars when they look at what's happening here and I think he sums up well what, what a lot of scholars think. The connection between the cry of dereliction, Jesus says, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 22, we clearly see, is not limited to Jesus' citation of the first lines, important though that is. Rather, the whole narrative clearly and strongly echoes the psalm throughout. Surely, Matthew and Mark intend for their readers to be drawn to the background of Psalm 22 as the interpretive key to understanding the story of Jesus' death. So what is Psalm 22 sang, and hopefully I asked you to turn to it a while ago hopefully you're there and you can look at it and follow along I just want to walk through it really quickly here It's a psalm of David and if you know a little bit about David uh, David (laughs) had an up and down life and there was a period of of David's life Many periods that he struggled with deep despair and deep suffering and deep, deep anguish of the heart So that brought some incredible prayers and songs to life that we have in front of us in the Psalter David was anointed as a young man to become king of Israel, and then he had to wait 15 years to become king. Much of that time, he's on the run in the desert as an outlaw, and that's where he wrote a lot of these, these psalms, and they're called laments, and Psalm 22 has, starts as a lament, and how I've defined lament for New Hope is praying uh, to God, crying out to God when things are not right. Uh, they're there in our Psalter. We're meant to pray them, and there's a lot going on in our world right now that's not right. And so it would be totally appropriate to, to use Jesus' prayer from the cross and other laments to cry out. God wants that. And it's not, it's not a lack of faith when we lament. It, it's actually showing faith in a God that hears us and, and we, we, we trust that he'll do something. So David's, David's starting Psalm 22 with this cry of lament. Maybe he's in the desert. Maybe he's on the run. And it's not right. He hasn't done anything to deserve that. And he's crying out to God. But then the psalm pivots. Really quickly, because Psalm 22 is a psalm of lament, but it's also a psalm of remarkable praise and defiant trust in God in the face of despair. And David says this, uh, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried out and were saved. and you they trusted and were not put to shame. So it, it dramatically shifts. It It pivots. And then, and then David, if you're, if you're following along, you can see this happening. I'm not going to read the whole psalm and go through it, but you can see it right in front of you. David despairs, and then he hopes, and then he despairs, and then he hopes. If you're an Enneagram person, I'm sure David's an Enneagram 4. I'm confident of that. And then he kind of comes to this point near the end of the psalm, and you'll see this. We're, we're now at verses 22 and 23, where David says this. It ends on this kind of crescendo of praise. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Psalm 22 is not about being forsaken. It's a psalm about staring in the face of despair and choosing to trust the God who never forsakes us. Did God forsake David? Did God turn his face from David? Well, let's let David speak for himself in Psalm 22, 24. And this was absolutely in Jesus' mind. David says this, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. Let me repeat that. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. The Jewish Psalter has 150 songs and prayers in it. Why did Jesus on the cross choose this Psalm? He could have chosen 149 other Psalms. Why is Jesus singing Psalm 22? He's singing it because it's his story. He's entering into it. And he's he's telling all those watching him that day. He's telling all of us down through the ages that are seeing his cry and, and inviting us to Psalm twenty-two that today you're witnessing Psalm twenty-two. It, it, it marks what he did. His closure ripped off and divided. He, he was surrounded by criminals. He was insulted and ridiculed. He was forsaken or had a sense of forsakenness, but he was never forsaken. God listened to David's cry for help. Jesus, as he's praying that day on the cross, assumed God would do the same for his son. Psalm 22 is actually a direct refutation of the idea that God forsakes us and turns his face away. God would never do that. What hope Uh, Does this give all of us as we we enter our lives in this uncertain season? Uh, A couple things. One, the idea that I think we clearly see in this passage is that Jesus suffered for us. That's how I like to say it. Uh, Our sin creates a separation between us and a holy God. So God put on flesh to bridge that divide. Uh, Jesus, God in the flesh, that's how I like to say it, experienced death so that myself and you can experience life. This is how Paul says it in Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're told in Romans that the wages of sin is death, so Jesus steps into that death on our behalf. The writers of Scripture talk about the idea of atonement. That word actually means being at one with We were not at one with God. Because of Jesus and his death, we can be at one with God. The prophet Isaiah said that Jesus bore our suffering. This does not mean that God abandoned his son. God the Father gave God the Son over to death so that we might experience life. Jesus as a member of the Godhead, as God, chose to do this willingly. This was not put on him as some kind of divine child abuse. Jesus in the Gospels, John says, no one takes my life from me, I give it willingly. The triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, made this choice together. And Peter, as he was preaching in Acts, has this great line, and this is post-resurrection, he's telling people that Jesus was not abandoned to the grave Jesus was willingly given over to death. He chose it as a member of the Godhead, but his death was not the end of the story. Jesus was raised to new life. So Jesus suffered for us. I think that we see that demonstratively in this passage. Second, Jesus suffers with us. At the Dachau concentration camp, uh, there was was an escape attempt. And in, in retribution, the guards picked 12 young men randomly to hang in front of the entire concentration camp as payback, as, as a warning not to do that again. And as I encountered the story, these 12 men, um, picture the scene, it's a ghastly scene, these 12 men, they made everyone in the concentration gather to watch these 12 randomly chosen young men and they're hanging and they're dead in front of the crowd and one of the gar- guards mocks the crowd and says, now where is your God? And I guess there was a deathly silence, there's just a lot of fear obviously, and then one courageous soul shouts from the back, there, pointing to the gallows, there on the gallows is our God. John Dixon is a scholar and pastor from Australia. He was speaking at the University of Sydney, and uh, there was somebody in the crowd from a different faith, and John was talking about the crucifixion, and this man raised his hand and said, I think it's preposterous and embarrassing that the Christian God is hung on a cross to die. And John says he lowered his head, and then he he remembers himself responding like this. He says, what you denounce is blasphemy, followers of Jesus hold to be precious. And then I love this line. He says, our God has wounds. Our God has wounds. Jesus, he was fully God, and he was fully human. Jesus, we know from the gospel accounts, experienced rejection and abandonment and betrayal and poverty and abuse and disappointment and despair and grief and loss and loneliness and torture and death. What?" what you've gone through, whatever you're experiencing, whatever fear you're feeling from this pandemic and all the other things going on in our world, Jesus knows. He's been there. He, 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 he suffers with us. The prophet Isaiah said he was despised and rejected by humanity, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When we cry out to God, and I encourage you to do so, I'm doing so, we cry out to God who's not distant and disconnected from our pain. We cry out to God who has wounds. God can relate to our suffering. The writer of Hebrews tells us that during Jesus' life, he offered up fervent prayers with cries and tears. We see that from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Prayers of, of lament. And those of us who follow Jesus, we can do the same. Maybe that just has to be our prayer for this week. God, where are you? And we're praying in line with God the Son. It's a holy prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a needed prayer. And we can do that and we can pray that with audacity because we know the final point that we see clearly from this passage that God will never forsake us. Because I think this this passage tells us not that God forsook the Son on the cross, not that God turned his face. I think it tells us the exact opposite, that Jesus was never forsaken. And I would challenge you this way. if, if, If you take the route that you think God did forsake the Son on the cross, I would warn you. I think that's dangerous because I think what that does is it absolutely breaks the Trinity. And the Trinity cannot be broken. If we break the Trinity, we break God. That means the end of God. We end up sawing off the branch we're trying to sit on or, or breaking the bridge we're trying to cross. With a broken Trinity, there's no hope. But there is hope. And Jesus, with his cry from the cross, does not suggest that God has forsaken him. He's pointing us like a signpost to the victory of Psalm 22. And if you doubt that, hang on for a few weeks because in a few weeks I'll be preaching the end of the series on Jesus' last words. You want to guess what his last words are? These are his last words. Father, into your hands I give my spirit. Does that sound like someone who's been forsaken by the Father that's had a relationship broken from the Father? Does that sound like someone who to the very end is staring death in the face and defiantly trusting God to never forsake him? Mark 15 is not an instance of divine tri- child abuse. It's an example of the triune God giving God the Son over to death, an act of self-giving love for my sins and your sins, and raising that Son to, to life so that life may be offered to me and life may be offered to you. It's about a God who never forsakes the Son and never forsakes us. And we see this in how Mark ends his passage. He doesn't quote Jesus anymore, but he gives us these remarkable things that happen once Jesus breathes his last breath. And one is that the temple veil split, Mark tells us from top to bottom. What a random thing to include, but it's very, very purposeful. This temple veil, Josephus tells us, it was Babylonian tapestry. It was 80 feet high, several inches thick. And it cordoned off the Holy of Holies where God's presence was. No one could go in there except for the high priest once a year. And he had to do that with a lot of fear and trembling because he's in the presence of the Almighty God. The minute Jesus breathed his last breath, that that veil split like wet tissue paper. It's gone. And Mark's telling us in dramatic and narrative form that any barriers between us and God, any God that you would ever think would turn his face away from you, they're forever gone. He would have never done that anyway but they're gone, he's removed, God's on full display, that invitation for all of us to enter into true life is given freely. So whatever, whatever you feel like separates you from God, God will never forsake you. God comes after you, God removes those barriers, whatever is rattling around in your heart, whatever fear and trembling, whatever you're going through that you don't think you can tell God about or other, that will not separate you, God will never, ever forsake us. That's the power of this passage. Many of us uh, this week may choose, and some days I do, some days I don't, you may choose to use as your prayer Psalm 22.1. And that's absolutely okay and warranted and holy and beautiful and of God. You may choose this week when you see everything going on and you're faced with that, your own anxiety and fear, you may choose to say, my God, my God, where are you? And that's okay. God can receive that and hear that. He's here. He's interacting with us. He's present. But maybe eventually, maybe this week, maybe one day this week, maybe next week or next month, you'll choose to also pray the end of Psalm 22. And let me just close with the end of Psalm 22 because it's triumphant. And this is ultimately what Jesus from the cross was entering into as his story. It's ultimately what he was pointing all of us to as his followers. And Psalm 22 ends this way. All the ends of the earth to a people yet unborn, and then here are the last four words of the Psalm 22: For He, He has done it. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you are a God that suffered for us. You, you willingly uh, gave yourself over to death on my behalf, on our behalf, so that we wouldn't have to experience death. We experience life. Thank you for that gift. And if there's people listening today that have never received that gift and entered in that life, may they do so at this very moment. We're grateful for that. And thank you, God, that you're not only God that suffered for us, but you suffer with us. There's nothing going on in our lives, in our hearts, our world that your son didn't experience in some way, shape, or form. So when we cry out to you, he cries out with us. He's sitting at your right hand, and he's with us in our time of need and suffering. And yet, God, uh, the great truth that undergirds all of that, that allows us to pray and live with audacity as followers of you, is that you will never forsake us. You'll, you'll come to the ends of the earth. You'll do anything to find us. You've removed every barrier, and you invite us into true life, so we're not alone. And in this season uh, of such uncertainty, of, of such seeming chaos, we anchor down to that truth as we walk with you triumphantly through what, what's coming ahead, God. And thank you. Thank you for this community. Thank you that we could gather with this technology. What, a, what an odd and yet interesting and great time to live in that we have this kind of opportunity to gather as a community. Hold us together in you, Father. Uh, we love you. We're so grateful that you're for us and not against us. And we pray as we carry ourselves forward, as we attempt to follow Jesus and share his love in a new way over these next couple weeks, that you would be with us, that you give, give us creativity, that you give us courage, that you would give us opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus as we anchor ourselves to you. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said...